Here we are in Mark chapter 12, once again, and we are, as I, as I mentioned in the past couple of weeks, we're, we're in this, this last week of the public ministry of Jesus. We're in this place where there's a lot of contention uh, occurring. The, uh, the religious leaders are pulling out all the stops and they're, they're trying to discredit Jesus. They're trying to turn uh, public opinion against him and so they, they keep coming with these different kinds of things. And as we now read together here today, uh, the Sadducees, they come with this hypothetical situation about uh, a woman who married a man and he died. And then her, uh, she married his brother and he died. And all the way through seven brothers, because the Sadducees, they did not believe in the resurrection. So the Sadducees were... Uh, really the theological liberals of the day. They didn't believe so much in the supernatural. Um, and so for them, the resurrection was just that they just were not going to buy uh, the idea of a resurrection. And, and this is where the Pharisees and the Sadducees would contend theologically against one another. And so the Pharisees have had their go at Jesus. And now the Sadducees come and they're trying to trip him up with this uh, hypothetical situation. And um, as we see here in the text, uh, Jesus listens to the story. And, and then I love what he says to them. Uh, and this, this is the case. So this is the case with the, the liberal or progressive, however they like to refer to themselves today. Those who claim to be Christians, but don't really believe the Bible, uh, don't believe in the supernatural dismiss things like uh, the virgin birth and, and the resurrection and so forth. Uh, what Jesus said to these men is what applies to them as well. In verse 24, are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? That's their problem. They didn't know the scriptures and they didn't know the power of God. Now they thought they knew the scriptures. That, that's, the, that's the thing. You know, I read an article this week um, put out by some Bible scholars. And it, it's an article on how troubled they are uh, regarding the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. And, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but the Green family, they're the owners of Hobby Lobby. They're billionaires. Uh, they built this Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. And the, these Bible scholars are so annoyed that they actually have a museum where they present the Bible as something trustworthy, where they present the Bible as something that you could actually believe in. And they're so bothered. It's, you know, it's kind of like by the Smithsonian Institute. So they're thinking, you know, people are going to get confused. They're going to think this is legitimate. And these are Bible scholars who don't want people to think the Bible is true. Isn't that ironic? Well, they are the modern day Sadducees. And just like the Sadducees came to Jesus, it just repeats itself over and over again. What's the problem? They don't know the scriptures, number one, and they don't know the power of God. And then Jesus just goes on, uh, you know, be, they, they don't believe in a resurrection. Jesus says, what about the burning bush passage? How did, God, uh, how did God introduce himself to Moses? He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God implying that they're still alive. 
And so that's where Jesus showed him. You don't know the scriptures. You think your authorities on the scriptures. Now, another quick thing about the Sadducees, the only part of the Bible they actually believed or saw as legitimate were the first five books of Moses. So if you were a Pharisee and you were trying to dispute with them about the resurrection, you could only use the books of Moses. And they were convinced that in the books of Moses, there was nothing about a resurrection. Jesus said, oh, you don't really know the scriptures, do you? Because let me quote to you from Moses. And it was from Moses that he shut them down. So now, as this thing here happens, we read in verse 28, then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? So here's a scribe and he's probably um, more of the Pharisaic uh, party, but he hears the answer of Jesus and he thinks, wow, that was really good. This guy's sharp. And so he comes now with, with a question. And the context reveals that he's sincere. And Jesus even, you know, at the, at the end of the story, Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom to him. And, but his question is, what is the, the first commandment? Or as Matthew puts it, what is the great commandment? What is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus quotes to him from Again, the books of Moses, he quotes to him from Deuteronomy. And this is what is known as the Shema. So here it is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Then Jesus says, this is the first, this is the great commandment. And that's what I want us to zero in on today. We want to talk about this first and great commandment. But once again, let me just say, so this is known as the Shema. The, the Shema is a Hebrew word. It's the, it's the first word in the sentence here. It's the word hear or listen, O Israel. And so they've just taken the first word. And, and you know, when you say Shema to a Jewish person, they know exactly what you're talking about because this is the Jewish statement of faith. So this is, you know, for, for a Jewish person, this is what they believe. They believe that there is um, one God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God, and so forth. So, th so this is, um, to this day, this is uh, amongst Orthodox uh, Jewish people religious Jewish people, this is their statement of faith. Now, one, just little quick side notes. Um, of course, the, the irony and, and the tragedy with the Jewish people is they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. They don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They believe that God is just an absolute unity, just an absolute one. But you know what's amazing? In the Shema itself, where it says the Lord our God is one, the Hebrew word is not the word that means an absolute one, which there is a Hebrew word that means that. It is a word that means that the Lord our God is one as a, what you would call a compound unity. That the Lord of our God is one, but made up of more than one. 
And let me give you a few examples. In uh, the book of Genesis, this word is used uh, when it talks about the evening and the morning are the first day, same Hebrew word. So you have evening and morning making up the one. Um, A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave uh, to his wife and the two shall become one. It's the same Hebrew word. Now, like I said, there is a Hebrew word that um, is an absolute unity. And one of the great, in, in the Jewish mind, one of the great rabbinical leaders in all of history, a man named Maimonides. Um, he was a medieval rabbi. And he was called the second Moses. And when he came to this Shema, he, in his translation, he changed the Hebrew word. He put in, now it, it didn't change in the in the text itself, the Hebrew scriptures, but you know, rabbis would often do their own paraphrase of the Bible. And so in the place of this one word here, uh, ekad is the actual Hebrew word. He put another word, yakid, and that word means just an absolute one. And he said he did it because the other word gave support to the Christian view of God being a triunity. So, I mean, he admitted that he changed it for that reason. But, of course, he had no uh, biblical basis to change it. He had no divine permission to change it. Uh, He simply changed it. So, that is just a little bit of a side note. Um, You know, it is oftentimes perplexing to people. How is it that Jewish people don't believe in Jesus? Well, it's pretty much because of the rabbinical influence and the way they have... Uh, twisted things. And here's an example of them having done that. So, but here looking at the Shema, looking at what Jesus said, this is the first, this is the great commandment. And in this command here in verses 29 and 30, um, we are told three things. We're told number one, the duty of mankind Secondly, we're told the measure of that duty. And thirdly, we're told the reason for that duty. And so those three things are what we're going to look at. What is the duty of mankind? Man, the duty of all people is to love God. That's what Jesus said. This is the first, this is the greatest command. Love God, paraphrasing, with everything in you. That, that's the first and the great command. Now, in the world at large, you, you could divide people up into three categories in relation to this command. Uh, first of all, you have people who would consider themselves God-haters. Now, there, there are people that just, um, you know, they, they hate God. They are um, very much out on a mission to uh, disprove God's existence They willfully and blatantly uh, disregard and violate the command to love God. Uh, They go out of their way to mock him, to blaspheme him, and to ridicule not only God, but anyone who has faith in God. And the poster child for this, of course, would be Richard Dawkins and those like him, uh, an American guy named Sam Harris, uh, the late Christopher Hitchens. You know, these are guys who, man, they just, they hate God. 
and they write in their literature. Uh, they go on these rants about the God of the Bible. It, it, to me, it's so fascinating that you would go on such a rant about someone who doesn't even exist. You know, what is the point? I mean, Dawkins, you know, he has this long list of, of things that, you know, that these negative things that he says regarding God, but he doesn't even believe in God. So why, what's, what's all the ranting about? I mean, you know, who goes on a rant about Santa Claus and just keeps on, you know, writing books about, you know, how evil Santa Claus is? I mean, you just don't do that, right? You just know Santa Claus doesn't exist, so you just say it and then you move on. But it's almost like these guys, um, they say they don't believe in a God, but then they, they spend their whole lives fighting against him. So there, there are people who are God haters. Then secondly, there are people who you might call them God neglectors. Uh, these people don't hate God, but they certainly don't love him. They rarely, if ever, even think of God. And I would say this is probably the majority of people. Uh, they're too busy either making a living or just trying to enjoy life. Um, they, they can't be bothered with being concerned about whether there is or isn't a God. This, this is many, many people, in, especially in our Western context. And then you also have... Um, and, and I'd say, you know, the ratio between the God haters and the, the third category, the God acknowledgers, is probably similar. You have people who just, you know, they're, they're willing to acknowledge that there's probably a supreme being. Um, but, but that's about as far as it goes. You know, they might uh, even have some admiration for the great uh, designer behind the design and, and that sort of thing. They are people who would... Uh, be um, defined as deist or theist. Uh, the difference between a deist and a theist is not, not a whole lot of difference, although there is a little bit. Um, a deist sees God as having been involved at one time in the very beginning, just starting everything, putting everything in motion, and then completely disengaged from that point forward, where a theist sees God a little more involved. But people like Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Franklin was, was really more of a deist, uh, somebody like Mark Twain, uh, somebody even more recent in history, the, the astronaut Neil Armstrong. We you know, just celebrated the, the uh, landing on the moon. Neil Armstrong was one of those. Well, he, he was uh, in that category himself. He was a person who acknowledged that there probably was a creator, but um, was not willing to go anywhere toward a personal God. So, so these are just, I think, as you just look at people in general, uh, most people would fit into one of these three categories. But I believe it's also possible to divide the church into categories relating this command to love God. In the church, you have uh, people who you might called the interested. They're the spiritual inquirers. Uh, for them, religion can be a good thing. It can be positive. Uh, it helps balance out one's life. It's a good thing for your kids. You know, you want your kids to have some sort of a moral foundation, so you're going to take them to church and, um, you know, might, might be something that 
will help you have a more positive attitude and, and even more success in your career. Uh, those are the interested. They, people come to church. Then there's people that are the informed. They're, they're kind of a step further. They know a little bit more. And yet for them, their faith is more in their head. It's not so much in their heart. Uh, they're content just to be a church member. The idea of having some intense love for God, that's not on their radar. They're, they're more just like, you know, yeah, I, I go to church and they're cool with that. And, and then you, you might even have another category of people who are enlightened. Uh, people who actually have an interest in, a deep interest in spiritual things, a deep interest even maybe in theological things, and maybe even a deep interest in the Bible. You know, for some people, the Bible is a fascinating book. For some people, the Bible is like a hobby. And they really enjoy digging into it and finding out all of this interesting information. And in some cases, they've got their theological systems all worked out. Uh, in some cases, they might even be defenders of the faith. Uh, they're always ready to debate and contend. They're passionate for the causes of Christ or what are perceived to be the causes uh, of Christ, but not necessarily passionate for Christ himself. See, Christianity to them is a system of belief to be rigidly adhered to rather than a personal relationship with the living Savior to be enjoyed. But all of these fall short of the great command because the great command, as we see, is to be lovers of God. We're to be lovers of God and, and not God just in some vague sense. Of course, you know, people can say, oh man, I love God. And then you press them, okay, well, like who's God? Well, you know, just God. There's no real defining of who God is. So Again, it's just the idea that, oh, I, I just, I love God, but there's so much ambiguity. We don't know who the God is that they're loving. The Bible says we're to love the Lord, our God, the, the one who created all things, the one who made us. And of course, Israel understood that. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God is one. And, and of course, here we have in the Old Testament text, we have the name Yahweh. That's who we're to love. We're to love the one God, the God who is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the command to be lovers of God. Love implies a number of things. It implies emotion. So we, you know, when you're in love with somebody, there's an emotional component, right? That's not all it is, but it, it is that, um, it's, it's something that you feel. It's, there's a passion there. I mean, when you think about that person or you see that person, there's something that excites you. You're happy. You, you have joyful uh, responses to that person's presence. And of course, that is part of what it is to love God. When we come together, 
or when you're even in the privacy of your own home or wherever, you know, for people who love God, there's a place where you express that love to God. You, you, you tell God, I love him. And there, there are going to be times for a person who really loves God where you're going to have an emotional sensation of loving God. Now, people are different emotionally. Our emotional makeup is different. So it's going to be different from person to person. For some people who are very uh, expressive and very much a feeling kind of a person, they're probably going to have those feelings a lot more than the more stoic kinds of personalities. And that's okay. We're not comparing personalities, but but everyone at some point, regardless of how unemotional one might be, in loving God, there's going to be some expression of it that comes forth from us. But it also implies devotion, commitment, and obedience. So devotion, commitment, and obedience. See, obedience is a huge marker of a person's love for God. Now, oftentimes uh, we hear people say, well, I love God, but they disregard his word. They ignore his word. They insist that they don't have to you know, submit to that word. They say, well, I don't really believe God said that, but oh, I really love God. Well, Jesus said it this way. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The person who loves me, shows it by keeping my commandments. The person who doesn't keep my commandments doesn't love me. And, and the commandments are, that's, he's generalizing there. It's, it's the command to, to love God and to believe in him. So that is our duty. Our duty is to love God. But the, the, the measure of that duty then, Jesus goes on to tell us, that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to love God, in other words, with our entire being. My whole life. You know, sometimes we say to people um, or about people, we say, oh man, I just, I love them with all my heart. And that's beautiful. That's so good. That's the same kind of, Thing that we are to have for God. Loving him with, with all of our heart, with everything in us. I love God. And so let's look at each one of these. The heart is, when the Bible speaks of the heart, generally it's not speaking about the physical organ, although it does occasionally do that. But for the most part, it's speaking about the center of um, each of us as persons. So it's the very center of our personality. It is really the totality of our being. And it is our will. We, we exercise our will. So to love God with the heart means that I'm fully committing myself to him. At the very center of my being that's what my life is about. A lover of God is going to be marked by that. That when everything is said and done, that person's life is about God and about 
pleasing God and, and you know, loving God. That, that, that's the core of everything. Although there might be other things, of course, families and careers and, and those kinds of things. Uh, and those th- things are great, right? They're things that God made, uh, but this is the deepest thing. So loving God with all of our heart. Then secondly, soul. And your soul is your, the word soul can also be translated life. And it's speaking about your emotions, your affections. Are, we're, we're loving God with our emotions. We have affection for him. And then mind is obvious, but mind refers to our intellectual powers. So God has given us uh, a mind and he wants us to use our minds to love him. And that's why, you know, the Christian faith is based upon truth and you have to reason, you have to think and God expects us. He gave us this brilliant mind. He expects us to use that, those intellectual powers for him and for his glory. And then Jesus said strength. With your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And this is a reference to your activity, to your energy, to your giftings, to your talents. So, you know, these things are all to be given over to the glory of God. What, what, what I do with my life, what I do with my strength, I, I do it because of God and my love for him and my thankfulness for all that he's done. And, you know, Paul, when he would write the letters to the churches, he would, he would say things like, whatever you do, do with all your heart as to the Lord. And that's what he's talking about here. Loving God with your heart, loving him with your soul, loving him with your mind, loving him with your strength. How do I do that? Just do whatever you do. Do it as unto the Lord. And that, that then makes every aspect of life potentially an act of worship. You know, in the most mundane thing you can imagine doing, you can worship God. You just do it for the glory of God. I'm going to go out and I'm going to pull weeds for the glory of God. <laughs> I'm going to thank God for the flowers. They're going to grow up and be strong because these weeds are now no longer going to hinder that. Or, you know, really, seriously, you, you can just do anything. That, that's the amazing thing. So that means all of our work all of our play, everything we do, we just do it for the glory of God. And we do it well. We do it to the best of our ability. And at the end of the day, we just say, Lord, I'm, I'm thanking you and, and I just, I'm offering this up to you. Our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Giving our gifts and our talents over to be used for God's glory. Now, thirdly, we have the reason for our duty. Our duty is to love God and we're to love him with everything in us. And the reason for that is because as Jesus says here, he refers to the Lord as uh, our God. 
It's because he is our God. He's your God. He's my God. And he's our God by number one creation. We talked about this a little bit recently when we were talking about the DNA and all of that, remember? But this is the truth. We exist because God made us. I'm standing here talking to you today and you're sitting here listening to me today because God uh, uh, allowed it to be so. He planned it to be so. He created every one of us. He created our bodies. He created our souls. He created the earth that we live upon. He uh, created the air that we breathe and the, the food that we eat and the, you know, the water that we drink and just all, all that we have, we have because God created. And so it is a completely reasonable thing to have as our first duty as human beings to love God because if it were not for God, we would not have a life, period. We wouldn't exist. So we love him simply for the fact that he created us, but he didn't only create us, he redeemed us. The word redeemed means to buy back. And you know the story, God created humanity But humanity, mankind, Adam and Eve, sold themselves into slavery to sin by surrendering to Satan. What God did is he bought us back out of that slavery. That's what the word redeem means. And Peter tells us that we were not redeemed with perishable or corruptible things like silver and gold. Now we put such a high value on especially gold. But that's not what God purchased us with. That wasn't enough. We were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from our aimless conduct received by tradition from our ancestors, but we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. So we sold ourselves into slavery to sin. Satan had us imprisoned because of sin to do his will and in in the course of that to ruin our lives and the Lord came and he redeemed us from that. And he did it by giving his life in exchange for ours. And so we see that the reason we are to love the Lord, one of them is because he redeemed us. He paid the price for us. And Paul would say this to the Corinthians. He, he said, um, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have from God, and you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You were bought with a price. And that price, Peter tells us, is the precious blood of Christ. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which belong to him. 
And so Jesus says, this is the great command. And how do we do this? Well, it really starts with faith. Now, it, in um, John's first letter, John says, he, he talks about us keeping God's commands. Says the commandments of God are not burdensome. He calls us to keep the commandments of God. But then he clarifies for us what it is that he's talking about. You know, sometimes in the New Testament, when we read the commands of God, we wonder like, okay, what is he talking about? Like the 10 commandments? Is he talking about all of those other commandments contained in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Exodus? And, um, but, but the New Testament narrows it down or, or puts it under the category, kind of like Jesus does here. Jesus takes, and remember, he has a second commandment too that we read. Um, these are the two great commandments. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. When we come to the New Testament, John, in his defining the commandments, this is what he says. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and love one another. So in, in John's understanding of the great commandment, the great commandment is ultimately fulfilled in believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, I can't love God and not embrace his son. If I love God, I'm going to love his son. I'm going to embrace his son. So, you know, when a person says, well, I love God, I just don't need Jesus or don't care about Jesus or don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Well, that person doesn't love God. They love an image in their own mind that they've, created, that they call God, but that's not who God really is. Because God, as we've seen, Yahweh, he is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is how we love God, by believing in Jesus. And when we believe in Jesus, God's spirit takes up residence in us. And now we're we're no longer our own. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're not our own. We were bought with that price. So what do we do with our lives? We glorify God. We glorify him. We we love him with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, with our strength. And, you know, that sounds like a, a tall order, and it really is. And if it were left up to us, guess what? None of us could ever do it. No one has ever with one exception, loved God entirely. And the one exception is Jesus. But everyone else, regardless of who it was, everyone else has has fallen short of this um, requirement of loving God with everything in us. But because Jesus didn't, because Jesus actually did do it, then as we believe in him, his obedience to that is then put on our account. See, that's what the gospel is. We're all called to love God. We failed. We fall short. But Jesus loved God. And as we trust in him, that love that he has for God is put on our account. And God looks at our account and says, yep, they love me. And they love me because my son loves me and they trust my son. And that's how we fulfill this command. But now as we are believers 
as we are those who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, now because we're indwelt by the Spirit, we have this power beyond ourselves in order to pursue this love for God. Now, I don't think I will ever in my lifetime love God perfectly with heart, soul, mind, and strength. But I want to try. I want to pursue that. I want to seek that out and, and seek to please the Lord. But my relationship with him and my eternal destiny is not dependent on whether I attain to that or not. That's already taken care of because of what Jesus did. So you see, Jesus gives us the standing before God as though we do love God perfectly, but he also gives us the strength, the power through the spirit to actually do the command to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so as we look at our own lives, as we close today, and you know, I, I would imagine we're all gonna say, wow, I fall short of that. But here's the good news. All you do is say, Lord, you know I fall short of it, but Lord, I want to love you like this word says, would you help me? Would you strengthen me? Would you give me the grace and the power that I need? And guess what? God will. You know, Paul says an interesting thing when he writes to the Thessalonians. He says, may the Lord direct your heart into the love of God. How do we love God? The Lord directs our hearts into the love of God. That's amazing. In other words, Jesus helps us to love God. And so that's what we do. We just ask him, Lord, help, help me. Help me to love God the way you said we should when you said that this is the first and the great command. And so Lord, thank you that you empower us to do this. And Lord, thank you. I, we know that um, as your word tells us also that we love you because you first loved us. And we're just reciprocating. We're just um, responding to your love. And Lord, you're so worthy. You're so lovely. And may we know that like we've never known it before. And may that understanding of your beauty and your goodness and your holiness, Lord, may that just move our hearts toward love for you. Holy Spirit, help us direct our hearts, Lord, into the love of the Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.